Hey all, Sunday here. I'm excited to announce that here at SmartLogic, we're hiring for a mid-level Ruby on Rails or Elixir developer, a product designer, and for a staff engineer. Come join our team and enjoy working from home with great benefits, flexible hours, a work-from-home stipend, and professional development opportunities. All right, now here's the show. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Sunday Mint, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Owen Bickford. Hey, Owen. Hey, Sunday. And our producer, Bonnie Lander. This season's theme is Elixir in a polyglot environment, where we talk about how Elixir works with other languages. Today, we are joined by super, super awesome special guests, Cassidy Williams and Toby Pfeiffer from Remote. Hey, how are you all doing? Hi. So good. Thank you for being here. This is so exciting. I've been looking forward to this for a few weeks now. So, so excited to chat. Just off the top of everything, where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from kind of close to Baltimore. I guess relative to Toby, I'm in Chicago. (laughs) Um, So, so like, I've been there. But Toby, you're on the other side of the world. Well, not directly other side of the world, but I mean, yeah. Berlin is quite far away and even sort of like the east side of Berlin. So a bit farther. Yeah. It's dark. My brain. I just thought I was like failing all geography when you just said you're close to Baltimore. I was like, Chicago is close to Baltimore. No, no. I, I was like relative to Berlin. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, Owen is in Michigan. And when I found out that Michigan is not in in a different time zone than me. My brain broke. So <laughs> yeah. it's so confusing because, like, Indiana is also East Coast time or, or Eastern time, and so, but it's still very Midwestern me, and and so suddenly, just your clock is wrong whenever you're on a road trip. My goodness. Yeah, we have some folks at Smart Logic in Indianapolis, and I also just every time I think about, I mean, it's great to be on the same time zone as your coworkers, but also confusing. So <laughs> fun times. Okay, so. Hot takes. We're going to just jump right in here. Centered app. Was that what we, what you wanted to talk about, Cassidy? Yeah, this isn't so much as a hot take as it is a gush period for Cassidy to talk about something. So I found this app called Centered, and it's a productivity app where, honestly, when I first saw it, I was like, okay, it's a glorified to-do list. I've made one of those. How could this be special? Whatever. But I guess I'll try it. And so what it is, is you put in your tasks for the day. It's a glorified to-do list. But what you do is you assign an amount of time that you want to give for each of your tasks. And so you could say, okay, this will take me about 10 minutes. This will take me a half hour, whatever, whatever. And then you say that you want to get into flow. And so what you do then is you you hit that button and there's like a little vo- voice coach that says, okay, let's flow. And as you're working, it'll say like, okay, you have 10 minutes left on this task or okay, you're halfway through with this task. And whenever you start doing something distracting, like you can give it permission to whatever you can say, it'll say, do you really need to be checking Twitter right now? Or is this app distracting you in some way? And it's very good because my mind tends to wander, especially in the pandemic when you're just on your computer indoors so much all day. It's been really, really helpful to have something where it just kind of keeps an eye on you and plays good music and you can connect your Spotify to it or just they have one of those like binaural music things. Have you heard of that? Where it has like the consistent rhythm. So it is like something to listen to, but it helps you think better. There's science. I've seen other apps do this kind of stuff too. But anyway, between the coach thing and then just like keeping you on task with the timer, I've gotten more done in like a day than I will typically get done in a week because I just actually am focused on it. And it's been really helpful for me. (laughs) <laughs> on this music point that's that's funny because i i find myself i'm not using this app but i will you know shuffle between music services and i'll just mm-hmm. i'll go into a, a playlist for in, uh, instrumental music yeah and nine times out of ten you know within an hour i'm hearing voices come out of the speakers and i'm you know that's distracting when <laughs> you're trying to code so this is uh kind of like low-key background just kind of pulsing right instrumental music right 
Yeah, yeah, very, very, very not distracting music. And I know, like, if I'm playing music where it's something I can sing along to, or back in my band nerd days, if I if I played it in an orchestra or something, I will be distracted by the music. And so it's it's nice to have something that like sounds good, is fun, and helps keep me focused. And there's like other features too, where for example, you can turn on your camera, and then anybody who has their camera on, you're kind of co-working with them. And so even though they can't see what you're doing, it kind of feels like, oh, there's people around me. I should be a little bit more focused. And it's it's been very helpful in that That's regard. a wild concept. I totally identify with you on the um, the music that you might have played in band or orchestra. Yeah. Everyone's like, why don't you just work to classical music? And I'm like, you don't understand. When a key change happens, I just sit there and yeah. like go baffled about this. Right. Um, like you just sit there and appreciate it. Be like, ah, oh, that transition. Like it, if you're into classical music, you know that that's not something that's not distracting. So speaking of, we've got some band nerds in the house. I don't know, Toby, if you've got some, uh, you know, musician skills as well, but I was in high school band. I think we need to like back up just a little bit and hear about who is Cassidy? Who is Toby? We'll start with Toby. Who am I? Is like, you know, it's a really tough, big question, but hi, I'm Toby. Uh, <laughs> I hail from Berlin. I let people put bunny lover on, you know, conference websites because I happen to sit in a room with two bunnies whom I do love uh, very much. But otherwise, uh, right now, so sort of like job wise, I'm a staff engineer at remote. Dot com, which, you know, Cassie made a wonderful video of like how fun it is to explain that you work at remote. But otherwise, I do lots of things. So I do open source. So I'm the creator and uh, maintainer of Benji, like the Elixir benchmarking library, but also of SimpleCoff, which is the Ruby code coverage library and, you know, a bunch of other sort of like, let's say, smaller libraries in between. I've been running the Ruby user group in Berlin for, gosh, you know, Almost 10 years, you know, been very active in like the Rails Girls community. I have my, uh, still my Rails Girls project group. Oh, well, now it's called Code Curious here in Berlin. The Ruby Corns, although I haven't been there a long time because now Tuesday evening I always play D&D. I love green. Like, I'm not like, I, I used to play keyboard, but like not on like a level, like I didn't use the black keys, right? You know, that, that level of playing keyboard, right? But I'm, I'm a huge music nerd. So when you were all just talking about like, oh yeah, I gotta have this music without, you know, without anything in the background, that's not me. I need to hear my, my punk rock, my hardcore, my metal, you know, I need to have that in my ear to keep me going, to push me forward, you know, and then like if I hit a thing that I can sing along to that just pushes me more forward, it's just like, okay, I'm in the rhythm now, I'm coding, I'm, you know, I'm delivering this, I'm doing this, so... I guess that's, oh, and my favorite color is green. That is like a very, very Toby thing to know that my favorite color is green. So like if I if I go to the Ruby user group Berlin and I don't wear green, you know, people will look funny at me like, what the fuck, Toby? Oh, I always forget, sorry, I always forget that I'm not supposed to swear when I'm talking, you know, to Americans. I, that is that is a thing. I got beeped on thinking Alex <laughs> here. I'm very sorry. I tried to control myself. <laughs> Oh my god, so good, so good. Cassidy, you also do a really good good job of picking out your music when you're making your short videos too. So who is Cassidy? How did Cassidy get into making these fun videos? Yeah, so Cassidy's just kind of a dweeb who likes memes. For getting into just tech in general, it was something that I discovered when I was young, like 13 years old. I was walking home from school and I heard a neighbor say, check out my website. And I was like, oh, you can have one of those. And then started looking up how to make websites. And that is how I got into tech and ended up majoring in computer science and, and mostly have done a lot of startup hopping and stuff since then. And I've always been interested in kind of the dev advocacy side, developer experience side. I In college, I would speak at a lot of events for fellow students, whether they were high school students or college students. And I wanted to figure out how I could keep doing that once I had it my career. And it looked like all of these roles were just software engineering roles where I could code and that was about it. And when I discovered the path of doing more dev advocacy stuff and being able to mentor people more and interact with people more, I leaned into that as much as I could. And in terms of the silly videos, I mostly wanted to make fun of the concept of a 10x developer. This was, and so I I was producing all of this technical content kind of in my own world in tech. And then suddenly I made a meme and my mentions exploded where there was a point in 2019 where I think it was a VC that put out some article saying 
that you want 10x developers on your team. 10x developers don't sleep. 10x developers code all the time. 10x developers actually don't have a good personality, but that's a good thing because they're coding. And it was so extreme like that, that you gotta make fun of it. So I was, I looked up like what video editor could I use on my phone? That would be quick for me to just kind of joke around about it. And that is how I discovered TikTok. And I have been making videos ever since. And and it's been a fun way to kind of relate to a lot of other developers because so many people go through the exact same pains and exact same issues with code and good things too, where, where you're just like, oh, I finally solved this after working on it for days. And it's kind of hard to express it just with words sometimes. And so it's fun to be able to make silly videos or, or or jokes where people can be like, oh, I know exactly how that feels. And that's kind of how I got into that. That's so fun. I have to say that I didn't know what TikTok even was in 2019. I saw your <laughs> videos on Twitter and I was like, oh, that's fun. That's cute. And like the video is vertical. Cool. And then like six months later, I found out that TikTok was a thing. And then like maybe two or three months after that, I was like, oh, is that what Cassidy uses? <laughs> oh. <laughs> so it was a very delayed reaction. I'm very slow to pick up on <laughs> the new trends sometimes. Well, and it's also just grown so explosively too, because it, honestly, it wasn't a lot of people on TikTok when I started using it. Like I truly was using it because the video editor was good, not because like there was such an audience to be had there. And I think Again, in the pandemic, people were indoors and wanting to be entertained, and it was a way to watch funny, fast videos. Yeah, for sure. So you're both at remote. I definitely want to dig into both of your roles and and sort of like how that ties into Elixir. But can you just give us like a blanket? What is remote for those who don't know? Toby, would you like to or shall I? I mean, you can if you want to, but I can also go ahead. In unison. In unison. <laughs> in unison remote yes. uh, no, remote okay is uh, i can go so remote is an employer of record so what it is basically we have uh, our own companies in i think 62 countries now and so we help uh, people employ uh, we help well employers employ people worldwide so because otherwise you have this problem you know you're in the u.s right and now you want to hire toby from berlin and, you know, you don't want it to be a contractor. And so what you would have to do normally is you would have to set up a legal entity in Germany so that I can be a full-time German employee for your company. And remote just has all of these legal entities. So technically, people will be sort of like employed at remote. So that's the legal basis. But in actuality, they will be working for you. So remote just basically makes this possible. It allows you to, you know, have employees all over the world. We know we add on top of that with services, you know, some benefits and whatnot. But yeah, I think that's the gist of it. Yeah, like a friend of mine, I have this one friend who's a startup founder who is trying to hire someone based in Budapest in Hungary. And he has been working as a contractor for pretty much his entire career because that's just what he has to do. And she wanted to be able to hire him and he wanted to figure out, okay, could I work for you as a full-time employee? But she's a startup founder. They've got a company of less than 10 people based in the US. And because she was able to use remote, she was able to hire him and he has a full salary and benefits and has a full-time employer, which is really useful for buying houses or, or doing other legal things anywhere. That is the advantage that is given to both employees and also to employers who want to hire people internationally without setting up entities in other countries. So yeah, it's a very sort of like complex problem uh, to solve because, you know, all of these countries have all of their own laws and everything. And um, at the same time, it's a very cool problem to solve because by that, you also sort of like enable people to work for these countries. So, you know, as Cassidy said, you know, both companies have access to more talent, but also sort of like talent, especially sort of like, let's say, in less privileged areas. You know, for me in Berlin, you know, I can find like a good paying job that's, you know, from here. But we also are open in, I think, like Nigeria. I think we open in Vietnam or like, you know, some other places that aren't as economically rich. And, you know, then, you know, they can work for, I don't know, US middle European companies and, you know, and make more money and hopefully also bring that money sort of like back into their communities, which is something that I really appreciate. And, you know, what is 
fun for me to work on as a product, right? You know, it's not like ads. Like, I hope I don't offend anyone, but I don't want to get up every day and be like, oh, I'm delivering better ads. I'm delivering faster ads. I'm spying on people more. You know, that's not what I want to get up to do every day. Right on. So and thank you for the intros and uh, kind of giving us a little bit of information about remote and uh, yourselves. I'm kind of curious, is there a story behind the uh, GitHub username PragTob? Is this like a pragmatic Toby? Is this a, there's something else to it there? That is exactly it. You know, it's, I mean, the longest story is when I was, I did an Erasmus in Sweden. And while I was oh, nice. there, I wanted to uh, participate in this program called Ruby Mendicant University. And, you know, I looked at it and everybody had a Twitter account. And like, you know, all the alumni said, Twitter. I didn't have a Twitter account. I was like, oh, sh I should have a Twitter account, right? And so like, I was like, oh, what should I call myself? And because at that time, sort of like the pragmatic programmers, sort of like the, the publisher, like this was my favorite publisher and also basically changed my life a little bit because before that I wanted to be sort of like more of a security researcher. I did all of the security stuff in university and everything. But then I read a book called uh, The Edge of Samurai by Jonathan Rasmussen, published by PragProc and also, you know, The Pragmatic Program, lots of other books. And that changed my view. I was like, you know, I don't want to be this lone guy sort of like attacking a server and like trying to break in i want to build something together with people you know that sounds way more fun and way more cooler so i love them a lot and you know i looked at what are their twitter handles and i think dave thomas is prag dave and uh, andy hunt is pragmatic andy so i was like you know what prag top sounds sounds fine lots of people assume i just like prague very much and i do like prague very much but <laughs> the actual origin is uh, <laughs> Is me stealing it from Dave Thomas. <laughs> the TLDR, stolen from Dave Thomas. Amazing. <laughs> Cassidy, I wanted to ask you, we've talked a little bit on Twitter about this, but for those who don't know, what does it mean to be the head of developer experience? Like, what does that mean to you? What does that mean for the tech industry just all around? What's been interesting is that it's kind of a somewhat new concept, even though it's been around for so long. I've done general developer experience things for a long time, and, and my job titles range from developer evangelist, developer relations, developer advocate, developer experience, developer experience engineer. Like It all comes down to what is the experience that the developers you have have, where if you can improve it in some way where, let's just say, your developers, whether they're internal or external, are using a CLI tool and there's way too many parameters that the CLI needs. I think I actually talked about that with Toby when I first joined remote. That's something that could be improved. So that way they don't have to type things for so long. Or for example, if you have a platform like Netlify, where I used to work, it's very easy to ship websites on Netlify, but for some people it's confusing. How can I make it less confusing for those developers? And so solving those kinds of problems so that developers can build the best that they can build, be the best that they can be is the high level summary of it. And it looks like tutorials. It looks like videos. It looks like education. Sometimes it just looks like fixing certain product features. But if you have a customer who's a developer, whether it's an internal one or an external one, you should focus on developer experience. And a lot of companies are doing that now. What's the, uh, so what's the developer experience story for remote uh, when it comes to Elixir or other languages? Are, are there APIs exposed that people can hook into? So it's very new, both because I am the first one working on it at Remote, and also Remote is a startup that has grown so quickly. I, I first met the CTO Marcelo back in like March 2020, and I think the company was like 25 people then. And Toby, how big is the company now? Like, So I think we're like a thousand or something, but you know, there's you know more confirmed hires beyond that. And as another data right. point, when I joined which was roughly a year ago, I think I was employee number 141. So like, yeah, it's grown. So, a lot. so it's truly been hockey stick growth. And so because the company has grown so much, it has been drinking from the fire hose ever since I joined, because there's so many people who have joined and so many new things that have started or where they're just like, oh, yeah, we started that last year. But that was when we were only 300 people. So it was never really picked up and, and that sort of thing. 
Remote does have an API that was just released, I think just in beta for now, uh, as we as we start to work on it, where if you wanted to integrate some of Remote's technologies and be able to do the actions that you want to do with remote payroll hiring, that sort of thing, you could integrate their API into whatever tools you might be building. And then at the same time, something that I want to focus on in particular is the education side of things. Because right now, something that Toby worked on actually and a bunch of other people at the company is there's an Elixir bootcamp where if you come in knowing another backend language, you can take the Elixir bootcamp and then be up and running and work on Elixir in the code base. And I want to First of all, take the bootcamp. I have it open in a tab and I'm I'm going to start it. I promise, Toby. I want to take that and actually open source it so more people can learn Elixir and, and hopefully give us good insights so that way we can not only hire more people, but also kind of show Elixir more to the world, but also figure out what other ways can we show people how they can be a better remote worker in general, especially in the pandemic, the company grew so much, but also just remote work in general has grown so much that we want to support that because a lot of people, even though we've all been doing it in the world so much in the past few years, there's still a lot to know and learn when it comes to being a good remote worker and communicator and team member and developer. Yeah, that's so I was actually going to ask you both about the open source nature of what you're working on at remote because I briefly chatted with Marcello or Marce- Marcello was it a Marcello. Hard seat Marcello I chatted with him in January just like just to, I wanted to know so much about this handbook this employee handbook that you all have on notion it is well I think it was circulating <laughs> at the time there was maybe a, like a little bit of a thing on Twitter but I was just like fascinated that all of your practices on everything from how you progress into from one kind of engineer to another kind of engineer or how you do career trajectory or how do you take a day off? All of that's just out there. I'm also a big fan of Notion. So that was really fun to read. But it was just like wild to me. And I, I was just like very interested in what kind of open source opportunities you all might have gotten into or were planning on getting into. Besides what you're talking about, Cassidy, about potentially opening open sourcing the the Elixir Bootcamp for either of you. Are there any other plans for open sourcing any other technologies? Toby's laughing. (laughs) Well, I'm laughing because I have this one thing on my mind, but I don't think I can talk about it yet because I don't think we have it announced. So there is something cool that we're doing, which is not on the Elixir side. It's more on the front-end side. I think I'm I'm okay saying that. And I'm excited about it. And it's a very cool project, but I don't think we have announced that we're going open source with it now. So... I can talk about soon, it. soon, soon. Yeah, so no, so soon. <laughs> okay. Definitely no pressure to announce it on this podcast first, Toby. None at all. <laughs> None whatsoever. But I mean, we do have but, other stuff. So if we have this one sort of like generator for our basic architecture for something around, I think it's called Phoenix Gen Solid or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kramer built it. That is out there. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of things that we could open source. Uh, or that I think we could open source. And I also always believe that sort of like actually open sourcing brings you to a better architecture of the system because then sort of the responsibilities are much clearer. You know, you have this thing, you say like, okay, this is not our core business logic. And it just, you know, deals with like general structs, lists and maps or something, not with our business logic entities. And then you can test it separately and you can release it separately and you just get it out of the craft. And sort of like, as sort of like a preparation for that, we're already sort of moving a lot of sort of like our, let's say, more general utilities into a separate namespace so that they're then much easier to extract. But as Cassidy has been saying, we've been drinking from the fire hose a bit. So it's not always easy to sort <laughs> of like get that time to be like, okay, you know, now we're open sourcing this thing. Well, you know, the fire hose keeps going. Yeah, it's it's something where we kind of had an open source org a little bit when I joined and then it wasn't super, super active. And then we had to like claim our username and there's a bunch of other stuff that we had to do. But there have been some really cool libraries that we've pushed out. One that I really like that is it's on the front end side. It's It's a React URL modal is what it's called. And all it is is that if you have a modal on your page, it has its own dedicated URL. Because you know how sometimes you give someone a link to a web page and you're just like, okay, click this button so the modal pops up and you can see. All this is, is it gives your modals a URL, which is so nice. And it's it's a simple little concept that we've turned 
uh, into a library. And then by the time this podcast is published, we had uh, the Devs for Ukraine conference, um, which is a big conference that Toby is helping us organize. And, and it's for both front end and back end to just raise money for Ukraine to to donate to some really great organizations. And the entire website is open source. So you could see how we structured it, how we set up the Stripe elements for donations, how we how we set up Next.js and, and uh, the structure of that whole website there too. So those, those are some fun ones that we've open sourced so far. Cool. Is there, so what's the stack behind that? Can you talk about it? That one, it's purely Next.js with some serverless functions. And so uh, the front end is mostly React and Tailwind, and then uh, the database and everything is, it's all pretty vanilla. We don't use Elixir, I admit, for that one <laughs> where we just, we populate it all with with, with Stripe. And, and I think it's just the donations and emoji reactions. Last oh I God. checked. Emoji reactions. Yes. Yeah. Um, Very yeah. important things are stored in that database. For sure. Everything doesn't have to be Elixir. We, we, what we wanted to really understand by the, the season specifically was to talk to people and get a gauge for when is it correct or when is it the most appropriate to use Elixir for things, but also we don't ever get a chance to talk to people who work primarily in other languages or other languages with Elixir that we don't normally talk about. We talk about Elixir and Phoenix until our ears fall off. Toby's <laughs> laughing again. But we want to know what else, what other combinations are out there. Endless possibilities, right? So do you all want to maybe speak a little to like the stack at remote? Toby, I think you mentioned backend Elixir, frontend. Uh, nope, we've got nothing. I forgot. <laughs> frontend is React, I think. Yeah, frontend is uh, Next.js, sort of like kind of like the Dust for Ukraine website. So like we're pretty... I would say sort of like standard, sort of like the backend is an Alexia monolith. Right now, there's a Postgres database, you know, that's it. Uh, basically, there's nothing too fancy going on. And so from that point of view, let's say, and it's a REST API. Uh, so it's not even GraphQL, right? You know, for those. But, you know, I think like our tech stack is relatively simple, but our domain is so complex, which makes it really interesting uh, to structure it. And, you know, there's already so much that we have to wrangle with in the domain that I don't want to wrangle with a lot of stuff, you know, on the tech side, it should just be there and it should just work. And the interesting thing that I think about for us is also, you know, tech choice wise, we're not a very high throughput business, right? You know, we don't get like, you know, a million requests per hour or, you know, whatever other number you think where you often feel like, you know, I build stuff in Elixir if it has to be sort of like highly parallel and it needs to do all of these load spikes and whatnot, you know, you don't onboard someone that often. You don't, you know, add your sick days or your vacation days that often. I mean, you know, of course, there's stuff going on. You check in with people and, you know, there's payments happening and everything, but it's not super hardcore scaling what's important for us is that we're up and that we're correct you know those are sort of like the most important things uh, for us and what's interesting is every single country is different there's so many exceptions to every single rule for every single country where they might do payroll differently or there might be different periods of resignation or periods of onboarding. There's different vacation requirements, different maternity and paternity requirements. There, there's there's so many different things with every single country. And so you can't get too specific on like, okay, this is how this will be structured. This will be this, this will be that, and and be very, very clear on it because it could change. So the the environment has to be very, very flexible. And like Toby said, correct, because these laws are necessary for people to get paid. It sounds like a use case for protocols and maybe behaviors. Is that something that is that are these tools that you're using in the back end in Elixir to handle all these kind of dynamic requirements? Or is there kind of a different approach that you're taking? Right now, not a lot. So we do have, you know, some behaviors, obviously, oftentimes, you know, for using, you know, with mocking with mocks and everything. We do not use a lot of protocols, although I'm sometimes thinking about if we might not be better served for, you know, using the dispatch via protocols. What we're using a lot really is just, you know, plain old pattern matches, you know, because, you know, pattern match on the country code. And then, you know, this is what this country does. This is what that country does. And, you know, it's like very, very explicit. And then sort of like we'll often have like one module that has, you know, one single purpose. It's, you know, build me the transfer transfer wise details to, you know, like 
get money to this point and then it will have all the matches sort of like for all the countries that we have and it will implement all of them. I mean, sometimes we also split it up differently, but that's, for instance, you know, something that we use there. I imagine your test suite must be massive. <laughs> you have so many cases to cover. They're not even edge cases. They're just... Yeah, they're not... Well, and laws change all the time. Like, things will change and we'll suddenly get a bunch of tweets saying, hey, your rules for Romania are incorrect. And then people have to change stuff. It's it's a lot. And, and it's really, really interesting to witness because you get such a global perspective seeing how so many countries are paid differently, so many employees in different environments are worked with differently, but it is a lot. And it's like you say, there's not a lot of edge cases because every country is an edge case. Oh, no. Or so um, none of them are. That that does actually make me think of, for since you're both from different countries, is there, and um, question applies to both of you, is there a rule or a law that you saw that you were like, wow, I can't believe they do that there? Anywhere? Maybe? I know Argentina has some very specific payroll rules where like they get paid in like USD, but then it's converted where other countries are just paid in their currency. Is that right, Toby? There was something funky with that one. Something there is, there was a desire to also pay in US dollars for uh, Argentinian employees because the um, I think right. the currency is fluctuating uh, so much. So that's a feature we implemented. But then the weird thing that I think that uh, Cassie is referring to is that you can't just pay them in US dollars. It's like a state law that like all salaries have to be paid in like Argentinian pesos or something. So what needs to happen is, you know, the contract I think specifies the US dollar amount. So that's okay. But then open payroll run, it needs to be converted to the current pesos amount, which you need to get the official sort of like exchange rate from a website, from the government, somewhere in like HTML or like in some Excel file or something. Then you need to use that on the day to convert it. And then you pay them in pesos. But the contract is in US dollar and like weird things all over. Your eyes are getting wide. We know it's chaotic. I mean, I can relate <laughs> because I've been working in... Just strictly U.S. like HR systems uh, lately, and and those are complicated in their own right. I can't imagine dealing with multiple yeah. countries, and you know that's it's just so so much. Forget, forget developing for it. Signing right. up for healthcare is hard. Yeah, just yeah. picking it. <laughs> it's just and then developing for it. This is something that maybe we're uniquely the four of us here are uniquely kind of familiar with. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, probably you are because like, I think generally the thing that was the most surprising for me was that I'm not sure if we're even available in all states of the U.S. right now because apparently you need to set up, you know, an entity in, I don't know, every state of the U.S. or you need to treat all the states, you know, differently. So I remember at some point we were only in 27 states and I was like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> you can't just be in the U.S. You can't just have, I don't know, an office in, I don't know, San Francisco, what, and then hire everyone to there. That's not possible. That was my, like, oh, okay moment. Yeah, I don't remember what the rule is exactly because I've never, like, owned a business. But I remember working at a company where we had a lot of salespeople and they traveled a lot. And they had to report which states they went to because our company was had to report that they did business in these states for tax purposes and whatnot. And I was just yeah. like... Like, I'm glad I'm not traveling because this is too much for me. <laughs> yeah, I remember that was actually something that my husband ran into a few years ago where he had an offer from a company and they were just like, oh, yeah, you can work fully remote. This is great. And they were just like, wait, but you live in Washington? Ah, oh, sorry, we can't offer. They had to rescind the offer because it was one of the states that they couldn't operate in. And we we're just like, but why? <laughs> we're all Americans here. And it, yeah, it just it just wasn't working. <laughs> Is that unique to America or is that something you've encountered in other countries as well? Or like the state or the uh, province, province matters? Yeah. I haven't encountered yet anywhere else, but, you know, I'm also not that close to like the, we have the sole sort of like country onboarding team. And I know like they, they could probably tell you stories up on for stories days. for, you know, <laughs> hours on end. I'm only in payments, so like, you know, only. my fun is, you know, figuring out, you know, some old sort of like XML format that you need to send to a bank to like, you know, pay all of these people and all the different weird restrictions that it has. And then, you know, you go like, oh, you know, probably in all in Europe, it's the same. And then, you know, oh, no, this country has this other restriction on like this thing of it and then that other thing. And I'm like, oh, it is very fun to sort of like architect that and run it and then also have the tests to, you know, 
back it up that you know none of this breaks like the moment i was the happiest there so like one of my happiest pro chapters is always like if you have some kind of export like you know this xml or like a csv or something you know generate a file once like write a test that is predictable in the data that it produces and then just write a test that asserts completely the entire file content against like a known good file because the cool feature of that is also sort of like if you change something about the generation you really see it as a diff in the test and you know xunit is very good at these diffs and then it's like oh yeah that is different now okay i changed it. and then you even see it in the gitlab or the github diff you know it's like oh somebody changed sort of like this test file that we assert everything against. So these are the changes that this change results in. And that just gave me so much more confidence. Once we had that test, I was like, okay, now I'm confident that, you know, we don't break this. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So this kind of brings me to something I was kind of gearing up for was you're, you're at a rapidly growing con uh, company, not a country. And what are some of the uh, growth pain points that you've had either technically or just in the, you know, coordinating between teams? Remote definitely does a lot of async work. Like, and they talk about it in our very open handbook. It's, it's been interesting. And Toby, I'll speak to my experience because I've onboarded recently, but I'm sure it was probably even different from when you onboarded. They've been very good at getting us up to speed where before we even joined, there was an optional call where you could jump in and they said, here's what your first week is going to look like. This is what your sec second week is going to look like. If anything changes, this is the channel that you should speak in and then we'll get you taken care of. So it was kind of cool working for a company that does this kind of onboarding for a business because I've, I felt very well taken care of as an employee. And then in terms of the stack and in terms of just Everything, everything is in Notion. Everything. And so if you want to find information about an all hands that we had a year ago, but specifically one where the CEO spoke about the company valuation, you could find that in Notion. Like it, every everything is is in there. And so because of that process, it's fairly good to say, okay, if I want to learn more about this end of the code base, there's documentation on that. If I want to see that there's some kind of RFC request for comments somewhere, I can I can find that somewhere in Notion. There's rabbit holes everywhere that you end up learning way too much about something that you probably didn't need to, but it's it's super useful that way. Yeah, I mean, it is very useful. And like I wanna say the one thing that for me really helps our growth like be not as painful is really the values. So mm -hmm. like that's part of the general handbook. And there's this value kindness. And it's like it's a really lived value. It's not like some some lie. It's, you know, you really go in remote and there's the most kindest, most helpful people sort of like at every stop that help you get along and that really listen to what you say. I had some of the I know, most amazing experiences where I would be complaining about something or like, you know, making suggestions about something that's not even sort of like my forte, sort of like something that the people team is doing. And they would, you know, welcome my feedback. We'd be like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, you're right, Toby. That's cool. And then, you know, they would go and implement it. But yeah. Growing this much is tough, right? You know, keeping everyone up to date, you know, getting everyone up to date with the co-pays and especially also the business growing so much. Like right now, you know, there's always, you find these issues, you know, something that was completely fine three months ago is now like, oh no, you know, we need to fix this now because otherwise, you know, there's all this pain for all of these people. So there's a lot of uh, work to do on these things that you don't see coming that early. And then, you know, on the Elixir side, you know, compile times, go way up you know we have a very big application with a lot of files that handle a lot of stuff right and so we actually talked to Josie Valim because I think I don't know what his official position is but he's like a technical advisor, advisor. something something yeah, he's an advisor for at, at remote so we sometimes get to talk to him which last time actually was today oh wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not that often it's just you know coincidence and then we talk to him and then we look at libraries and whatnot it's like okay these compile times oh yeah and then he gets like oh this is the next thing and then we try it out with Elixir master and you know we see sort of like is it better now how much better is it now test run times are not as big of an issue uh, I mean, they are an issue, but like at least for me, it's not the biggest issue. I can still run them sort of like okay-ish on my own machine. I think like, I don't know, maybe five minutes or something. So it's not super great and I don't run them all, all the time. But then, you know, also the end-to-end -end tests get in, the build time for <laughs> the image for deploy gets longer. And so that gets annoying. Then, you know, deploying all of it as a monolith and everything. 
we even ran into like a fun little problem where I think we were producing out of memory during <laughs> during during test runs, but it was some format that we used. And actually, uh, one of our coworkers, uh, Joel, he actually submitted a patch to Elixir only store test timings in CLI format when slowest is used, and you know to reduce that memory usage uh, that somehow got up with that. So all kinds of sort of like fun weird problems that you find some small, some big. Yeah. And when you mentioned Jose, it reminded me that I wanted to ask about that technical advisor kind of relationship, but also how did you pick the tech stack for remote when it, like, did you have Jose as someone in your back pocket already, or did you like pick it? And then that's how that relationship came about or the decisions that companies make, especially when they're growing in like a high growth mode startup style, like whoosh, rocket ship. <laughs> it's always interesting to me. Like, how do you pick a stack and then immediately go with it? So none of us was there when sort of like Marcelo, Yop and Eduardo made the decision at the time. I did see though today on Twitter that apparently there's a podcast or some interview coming up from Alexia with Marcelo and Paolo. Uh, Paolo is our VP of engineering, just about that topic. I personally, small side story, I personally like to think that I had some way in it because in 2016, I was giving a presentation about Alexia and Phoenix at RubyConf Portugal and both uh, Eduardo and Marcelo were in attendance. So I like to think I had like one small part to play in it, but you know, they probably knew before. Well, but you're telling my... the story right now. So <laughs> you did this. Remote exists because of you. <laughs> I, I always wonder, you know, do Yob and Marcelo ever go and listen to these? You know, will Yob ever DM me and will be like, hey, Toby, the way you described our business was not correctly, <laughs> was not correct, you know? Or like, Marcelo will go, no, like, I've done Elixir much longer than you. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> now, um, like, the one thing that I always like to think of is that, you know, Elixir is just an incredibly nice language to work in and model your business logic in. So, like, I, I come from Ruby, right? And if I would have to think that we would have all of this with like a standard Rails application with Active Record and all the callbacks that people usually put into it, you know, I would run away screaming because I would have no idea how to debug anything or how to do basically much of anything. And so that explicitness that is very much ingrained into Alexia and also sort of like the ease to follow what's happening that immutability grants you, I think is very well suited for such a complex business domain because Basically, it makes it hard to change things without noticing. And so it mm -hmm. makes it easy to follow how things change and how things flow. And I just love Acto with, you know, the change sets that I can compose, the way I can use it for validation almost anywhere. So when candidates ask me this, I always say like, you know, I wasn't there, but I bet that's the reason. <laughs> I wasn't there, but I did this. <laughs> <laughs> so this i never told anyone this is the first time i ever sort of like connect that story well, this is a tell-all episode now <laughs> hmm. so i'm curious like you're hiring obviously a lot of people and they're coming i'm sure some of these people are coming from an elixir background some people are coming from ruby javascript typescript different areas what are the things you're seeing as people are getting upskilled or trained on elixir either for the first time or moving up from junior to senior with Elixir? So mostly right now for this particular paper, we're only hiring senior, like high-level, mid-level engineers to that do not have an Elixir background and then train them on Elixir. And what I see is, you know, as Cassie said, you know, I, I wrote the sort of the first version of the training camp and I'm, you know, always there as a mentor and like sort of supporting it. It goes amazingly well. Like really like people get to be productive much, much faster than I would have ever expected. So if like the training camp goes for sort of like a month or something, and basically after another month, people are incredibly productive already. Like not that they don't get to do anything before, but it's like, you know, I will need help with an issue. And somebody, you know, from a training camp that just joined sort of like two or three months ago will be the one that is like, oh, Toby, I know how this works and here's how I can help you. And I will be like, wow, this is, uh, this is so cool. And it's it's really fun, you know, seeing these people around and lots of them are also so happy about Elixir. I mean, 
I will maybe embarrass him a bit now, but you know, Kevin, he was the first one who ever joined it. And he just goes on and says, you know, it's just so fun. He today in the call with Jose, he told a story of like how he gave, I think, a lecture at the university yesterday. And it's like, did language choice ever sort of like impact your employer choice? And he was like, you know what? I saw Elixir and it was just this beautiful, wonderful language I wanted to work in. And I got to work at this place and they taught me Elixir and it was really, really great. And I love it so much and it's really, really great. And he's just so happy. And he came from, I think, yeah, he did C Sharp before. And, you know, that's pretty much universally what I hear. Like people are really happy with it. I mean, of course, there's always stuff that they think is odd or weird or like, oh, why can't I do this? You know, I used to be able to do this. So there's obviously, you know, always some of that. But overall, it's going like really, really well. I'm super happy with it. Yeah, for sure. Cassidy, do you have a favorite front-end, back-end combo currently before pre-bootcamp? We might want to come back and ask you post-bootcamp. Yeah, ask, but right ask now, me later and I'll have some strong opinions. <laughs> Honestly, I, I did work for Netlify, so I have some elements of bias. But if I can pick a stack, I typically like to do some element of front-end heavy plus serverless functions if I can. I really like being able to build a mostly front-end powered thing that that is not necessarily all static, but is hydrated with serverless functions and, and stuff later, just because I, I like the idea of a site being able to be served from a CDN while enhanced with other things. So the site just doesn't go down if it gets a ton of traffic. It might have lots of loading spinners and stuff, but the site just doesn't go away as a result. And so that's something that I feel very strongly about it. And I've played with various serverless function languages. Like I've tried Rust a little bit and Go a little bit. But if I'm being honest, JavaScript is where my comfort zone is. And so I kind of stick to Node and JavaScript for, for a lot of stuff. But what I want to do in in like the side project that is forever on the pile once I finally learn things, what I would like to do is to build a full site that uses React and Astro on the front end and then on the back end uses Elixir and then Supabase as the database. I feel like that could be a really cool combination of things, but got to learn some things first. All right. Well, the day you get into that, definitely live stream it. I'll come yeah, I'll yeah. come hang out for sure. <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> cool. So, I'm going to move into some of the fun questions. Toby, can you tell us about your GitHub profile picture? He's laughing again. <laughs> 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 I'm always laughing. Uh, you mean the profile picture, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, I mean, I guess for those that, you know, are just listening can see it. Uh, if I remember my profile picture correctly, I hope this is the one. It's basically a painted picture of like some sort of uh, hunter that kind of looks like me when I still had my curly hair, basically, and is holding uh, a bunny in his, I think, left arm or right arm. Oh, I missed the bunny. The bunny is the most bunny? important part. Wait, am I talking about the right picture? No, 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 no it's you there. probably it's there. are. I just totally missed it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I there there is a bunny there, which is, you know, usually and that bunny's name is Ghost, and you know, that bunny does actually exist and is hopping around on the floor here right yeah, now. Yeah, we saw him earlier. And you know, that exists because I was kickstarting a game which is called Fear 2 The Shattering, which is uh, one of the sequels to my all-time favorite games. And it was quite inexpensive i think for well for 150 british pounds so i don't know what that is maybe like 200 dollars or something i could have like an image of my choice drawn sort of basic of myself and i did choose this sort of i was oh, like okay like cool. i want to have this image of like me as a ranger and like me holding you know my bunny and i could design a quest so in that game you can well I, if you start as a hunter you can basically start with my profile picture you can also meet me in game and like a little boy will come to you and will be like, oh, I have uh, my uncle Tobias. And like it's, it's a bit of Slavic mythology, so it's Tobias. Uh, you know, he is a bit, you know, he's a bit mad and he's looking for his bunny. And then you can go to Tobias, find Tobias, and then Tobias will task you with finding his magical bunny ghost. And then there's That's three variations awesome. of that quest that I know of were all very, very fun and very cool. And then if you manage to bring back the bunny, which is quite difficult, I must say it's one of the more difficult quests in the game, then Tobias might join your party. And the game is sort of like a mixture of all of my basically favorite game types. So it's a bit weird. So it's like 4X, which is kind of like, you know, civilization, sort of like big hex style, move around and stuff. 
RPG, very heavy RPG elements. Like you can fight, you can, you know, talk with people. Like there's actually sort of like talking challenges and sort of magic challenges as well. And the way that the challenges are resolved is through a card game with sort of like your characters and, you know, your abilities that you have and the different weapons that you have. Sort of like they are influenced then, you know, what cards you can basically play and how strong they are. And then it's also a rogue light game where, you know, after you play, you unlock new stuff. So you get some points and you unlock, you know, a new god that you can play for or a new starting character. So then you can also start with like a young elf druid who is, you know, very overpowered as opposed to human. And it's this beautiful this Slavic so mythology fun. world. <laughs> yes, I do love that game very much. That's so cool. You know what sounds fun to me? I mean, absolutely. I've got to got to study on this game here and maybe do some downloads. But mechanical keyboards. This is a a passion that I have flirted with. I've not sunk more than a couple hundred dollars onto keyboards yet. But I know someone in this in this group is a keyboard queen. So tell us about it, Cassidy. What do we need to know? You shouldn't have cracked open the door because you've opened the box. I could talk about keyboards a lot. I have a handful of keyboards, a certain number that is large, and they are awesome. And so for those who don't understand the appeal of mechanical keyboards, allow me to try to convince you. So when I first got into keyboards, this was back in like 2015, 2016, I thought it would be cool to have a keyboard that looked cute on my desk because every single keyboard you saw was basically like the Mac keyboard or just like one of those black plain ones that you could get at any electronic store. And so I wanted to get something that looked kind of cool. And thus I opened the door to mechanical keyboards and it is a community that has grown and is thriving and is awesome. So when I say mechanical keyboard, it means that there's an actual mechanical switch that is clicked when you hit the key and it makes the connection in the circuit. Back in like the 80s, there was the IBM Model M that had a fantastic keyboard that is still being used today. You can use it and, and it'll work really well. I actually have a friend that found a keyboard that was made on the day that he was born and that's his go-to driver keyboard. These keyboards are solid. They have these very powerful thoughts where when you type on it, you're just like, wow, I could control spaceships with this. It's so, so cool. And as computers and thus keyboards became so much more popular, they were just much more cheaply made. Where as they became more cheaply made, they, they started having more rubber dome or membrane keyboards where it was just kind of more of a capacitive circuit where it was something just being pressed against a circuit instead of a mechanical switch. So the mechanical keyboard enthusiasts craving something more high quality, they started saying, okay, well, I'm going to use my IBM Model M, or I'm going to use these switches that you can still get from this fact, the cherry factory in Germany, and I can make my own mechanical keyboard. And the community started growing more and more, where QMK firmware is an open source firmware where you can custom program your, com your keyboard to do anything. First of all, at first it was just like saying, oh, you're... HKJL could also be arrow keys, for example, if you wanted to go the Vim route or if you wanted to have layers in your keyboard. But now you could do a stenography-based keyboard where you type with chords. You could change things to be like a Dvorak layout or something. You could even control MIDI sounds with it. There's so many options with just this firmware. There's so many options with PCBs and the electronics. There's so many options with the mechanical switches where it's not just cherry. There's factories all over the world making such cool switches. And I can see all of your eyes glazing over. Don't worry, I'm almost done. And because so many people were so into mechanical keyboards, it's become such a fun hobby where enthusiasts will come together saying, here's how I've modified my keyboard this way. Here's how I've combined these different keycap sets. Where even just in the time where I've been in the hobby, when I started getting custom keycap sets in like 2016, it would take me a solid like two years to get a keycap set because it's such a niche hobby that it just takes a long time to manufacture and get everything out. And you would need to organize a group buy of 200 of your closest friends to buy the keycap set with you. Now there's businesses that actually do this for you. And there's much more accessible options for getting keycaps and getting switches and stuff where you can build the keyboard of your dreams that feels exactly the way you want it to feel, types the way exactly you want to type, 
for much cheaper than ever before. And it's awesome. The end. You know, I, so you know, I'm fascinated by the keycaps because someone introduced me, I think, last year to I just started kind of dipping my toes in, in mechanical keyboards. I had mentioned to someone and they sent me a link to this site where you can just pay ungodly amounts of money for these little keycaps. And I, my problem is I would have an entire keyboard full of crazy keycaps that would not tell me what the key does. It would just be like little figurines yeah. all over the keyboard. I feel like we're killing Toby right now. His reactions <laughs> He's just like, have what so have you good. done? <laughs> <laughs> this is fun though, because like, I will say that like, I see Cassie, Cassie do on Twitter and I think TikToks and keyboards. So I've always known that this was a thing, but I never actually heard the history of it. So that's fun for sure. Thank you, Cassidy. Appreciate it. I, I just have to add at this point, like I didn't know that this was a thing with Cassie. And then we were talking about someone that I admire a lot, uh, Aaron Patterson. Oh, yeah. And then Cassie was just, you know, like, oh, yeah, I always used to go to like the mechanical keyboard meetup with him in Seattle. And I was like, oh, no, what, what have I done? <laughs> yeah. So in Seattle, they actually, and granted, pandemic thing. So who knows now? But when I was uh, out in Seattle, I lived there pre-pandemic. I helped organize the Seattle Mechanical Keyboard Meetup. And we had like three or 400 people come just to show off keyboards. People would fly in to, to check out keyboards. And it was awesome because you could hear talks from manufacturers to say like, okay, here's how keycaps are made. Here's how the different plastics were affect certain things. He was like, here's how you modify your switches. So that way it's a heavier spring, but like a lighter click, or here's how you can learn stenography where you can type in chords and get a words per minute of 250 words per minute. There are so many really, really interesting things and just being around a bunch of nerds. And there is a meetup here in Chicago that I went to. There's like 20 of us, but we will rise and grow. And it's so fun to be able to get into a hobby that is kind of niche like this because people outside of it, they're just like, yeah, I just type on a keyboard. But the people in it, you're right, Toby, there's dozens of us. It's so fun to be able to really get into the nitty gritty of every single aspect of your keyboard because it's it's like playing with Legos, but another level because you get to work on it every single day. I think I think it's quite possible that all of us have something we're this passionate about. So it's so much fun to be able to give you the platform to talk about it. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of giving you the platform, though, do you have any final plugs or ask for the audience as we wrap up this amazing episode? Toby, I can let you go first if you've, if you've got anything. Top of my head, I'm actually... Oh, well, okay. If we're talking about things that you know passionate about, there is this brilliant author called uh, Brendan Sanderson, and he has this amazing, you know, area of books, which is, uh, you know, the Cosmere, and they're just so fun to read and so well-written, you know, he also really portrays, especially in Stormlight Archive, mental disabilities very, very well to a point where, like, you know, when I'm feeling down, I can't read certain chapters of, you know, Stormlight Archive because of a certain main character is in his depression phase, and, you know, I can't read that because that gets sort of, like, too close to me, and it's it's really good. It's kind of tough where to start with reading his books, but I always recommend people to start with Mistborn, The Final Empire first. It's one of his, you know, earlier uh, works, but it's really good. And the good thing about it is it stands really well by itself. So if you read it and you decide you don't like it, you've still read, you know, a complete story and it's fine. And if you decide you want to read more, it's actually a trilogy. And then you read a trilogy and then, you know, you can go on afterwards to Warbreaker or Elantris and then Stormlight Archive or the what's the one in Arcanum Unbounded. But then, you know, you can go on to Mistborn Era 2 and all of that. And it's been really fulfilling. You know, I, well, I read those and I, I did something that I never did for a long, long time. I just, you know, stayed in bed all day reading The Well of Ascension, which is the second uh, Mistborn book, because I just wanted to know how it ends. You know, like my partner left in the morning, <laughs> came back in the evening, was like, are you still in bed? Really? Is this what you do? He's like, yes, it is so exciting. So this is something that I can always, you know, plug and, you know, encourage people to read. I just backed his Kickstarter for those secret projects. Oh my gosh. So the, 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 the most amazing Kickstarter that I just hit my mic, the most amazing Kickstarter to ever happen ever. We will be talking about this all day because I just finished Wheel of Time. So I'm a budding Brandon Sanderson fan. I, I can't even get into it. Cassidy, do you have any plugs or ask for the audience? <laughs> so I stopped talking about this. Let me think. 
Okay, my shameless plug is I have a newsletter. If anybody would like to subscribe, casadu.co slash newsletter. I, it is not Elixir heavy. It's front end heavy. And so if you want to learn more about that, I have like five interesting links of the week, four or five interesting links of the week of just like news articles in the web space. I have a joke every week and I also have an interview practice question every week too. So people can practice like their lead code style interview questions, which is always fun to see when people respond for that one. And then in terms of book stuff, if we're talking about books, the current book that I'm reading is called Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. And it's really good. And it's it's like a multiverse sci-fi book that is really, really interesting. And, and basically this guy wakes up and the world is not his world, or is it? And and it, it's been really interesting and fun to read. All right. Now that I know that we have to pivot the podcast to book club, Bonnie, you can take notes on that. <laughs> I will have to say that this has been an amazing episode. Thank you so much for being here and chatting about all things Elixir, all things fantasy novels and mechanical keyboards and bunnies. I didn't know we were going there today. So that is awesome. <laughs> so that is it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guests, Cassidy Williams and Toby Pfeiffer for joining us today. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic production. Today's hosts include myself, Sandy Mient, and my co-host, Owen Bickford. Our producer is Bonnie Lander, and our executive producer is Rose Burt. Here at SmartLogic, we build custom web and mobile software. We're always looking to take on new projects. We work in Elixir, Rails, React, Flutter, and more. If you need a piece of custom software built, hit us up. Enjoying Elixir Wizards? Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Your reviews help us reach new audiences and grow our fan base. Follow at SmartLogic on Twitter for news and episode announcements. You can also join us on the Elixir Wizards Discord. Just head on over to the podcast page to find the link. And don't forget to join us again next week for more on Elixir in a polyglot environment.